Chapter 5, Part 3 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885 to 1905, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Presidency of Benjamin Harrison, Part 3. The McKinley Bill had been passed by the House of Representatives in May. With the Reciprocity Amendment, it passed the Senate in September and it became law by receiving the signature of the President on the first day of October, 1890. Note 34, page 212. Even before the measure had been adopted, but when its passage had become a moral certainty, a sharp advance in prices throughout the country was acutely perceptible. Merchants were unwilling to sell their goods at the old rates when the cost of importation was so soon to be increased. Those who did so made a virtue of the fact by advertising that certain wares would be sold at low figures for the next few weeks, but that after a specified date the prices would be raised because of the McKinley Bill. Although these announcements were only business devices, they helped to imbue the public mind with the belief that the new Tariff Act was certain to increase the cost of living. Importers hastened to bring in enormous quantities of goods so as to take advantage of the more favorable rates that still prevailed. Ocean liners sought to break the record for speed in hurrying cargoes across the Atlantic before the new act should take effect. The Cunard steamer Etruria, reaching the port of New York a few minutes before the hour set for the enforcement of the McKinley Bill, saved by her speed something like a million dollars for the owners of her cargo. Everywhere the pinch of higher prices was quickly felt, while no increase in wages was perceptible. For the first time since the war, the nation received an object lesson as to what high protection really meant. Hitherto, the average man, and especially the average woman, had turned a deaf ear to tariff talk. What did they care whether steel rails and iron ore cost more or less? They did not clothe themselves in iron, nor did they dine and breakfast upon steel rails. But now every household throughout the land learned that the purchasing power of the family income had been seriously reduced. The housewife who went to market and suddenly discovered that she must pay much more for supplies than she had ever paid before, began at once to take a very personal interest in the cause of this phenomenon. Butter, eggs, flour, dried apples, lard, potatoes, bacon, corned beef and poultry leaped up in price after a fashion which to persons of limited means was most alarming. Note 35, page 213. It now cost more to clothe the family, to carpet the rooms, to provide table linen, and to keep the domestic utensils properly renewed. An outcry went up from those who usually paid no attention to economic questions. Party hacks tried hard to create enthusiasm for Bill McKinley and the McKinley Bill, but their efforts were met with sullen silence or open denunciation. The way in which the measure had been jammed through, the House of Representatives under the iron rule of Speaker Reed was offensive to the American sense of fairness. Mr. Reed, having got a taste of arbitrary power, apparently became intoxicated with it. At first, the country had applauded the nerve with which he dominated the body over which he presided. So long as he used the new rules only to prevent filibustering and to ensure the efficient dispatch of public business, the sentiment of the people was with him. When he said in his epigrammatic way, This house is no longer a deliberative body, the remark called forth an approving laugh. But in time, what at first had been a wise autocracy became something very like oppression. It was not permitted to members of the minority to question the accuracy of the speaker's count. Representatives were recorded by him as present when they were actually hundreds of miles away. Even the privilege of an appeal from the ruling of the chair was no longer recognized. 
Mr. Reed carried his tyranny so far that at last members of his own party were driven to revolt. On one occasion, note 36, page 214, the Speaker ordered parts of the Journal of the House to be omitted in the daily reading. Mr. Mills of Texas objected, and it came out that the Speaker had been guilty of a misstatement and that the parts of the Journal which had been omitted contained a record of proceedings which had never taken place. Even then, the arrogant Reed refused to have the necessary correction made. An appeal from his ruling was taken, and enough Republicans united with the Democrats to override the Tsar. The congressional elections of 1890 took place at the very moment when public sentiment was most deeply stirred against the record which the Republicans had made. In less than two years the Treasury had been emptied, the odious force bill had been introduced, a sort of tyranny had been established in the popular chamber, the cost of living had been enormously increased, and no one had received any benefit save the multimillionaires of the protected industries and the sugar trust. The election, therefore, proved to be a veritable cataclysm. The Republican majority in the House was swept away. When Congress met in 1891, the Democratic representatives numbered 235, and the Republicans only 88 while in the Senate the Republican majority was reduced from fourteen to six. A significant fact was the strength which had been shown in the West by a new party which now became known as the Populists, who elected nine representatives and two senators. Note 37, page 214. In the South, out of 121 members, there were only three Republicans. Even in New England the Democrats secured a fair majority. In Ohio, Mr. McKinley was defeated at the polls and retired for a time to private life. Mr. Blaine's prophecy of disaster had been strikingly fulfilled. Note 38, page 215. In 1890, great popular interest was aroused by a movement to overthrow the Louisiana Lottery Company. The story of this contest deserves to be repeated here because the issue presented was not unlike the issue involved in the battle against the trusts. It was a contest between great wealth and selfish interest on the one hand, and an enlightened moral sentiment upon the other. Those who feel a sense of hopelessness when they endeavor to forecast the final outcome of any struggle such as this may take courage from recalling the defeat of one of the most ably planned conspiracies against the common welfare which this country has ever witnessed. The Louisiana Lottery had been chartered in 1868 by a carpet-bag legislature at a time when political conditions in that state were indescribably depraved. The promoters of the lottery were three in number, John A. Morris, Z. E. Simmons, and C. H. Murray, men as unscrupulous and as able as any who engineered the later trusts. At that time, although most states had by law forbidden the sale of lottery tickets within their borders, these laws were practically disregarded. Several enterprises of the sort, nearly all of foreign ownership, reaped a rich harvest by the sale of tickets for their monthly drawings. Among these were the Havana Lottery, the Royal Saxon Lottery, the Hamburg Lottery, and later the Kentucky Lottery. Morris and his associates, having secured their charter in return for an annual payment of $40,000 to a charity hospital, proceeded to organize their business in a very far-sighted way, taking every precaution to fortify themselves alike against the law and against popular prejudice. They secured the services of General Early and General Beauregard to superintend their monthly drawings. They advertised extensively in leading newspapers throughout the United States, paying for their advertisements several times the ordinary rates. 
they even established newspapers of their own and maintained them so that if necessity arose the lottery would have staunch defenders in the press in every great city of the union the ablest lawyers were employed as counsel for the company to watch for and to avert every possible form of danger in louisiana morris practically controlled the state many of the judges were to all intents and purposes appointed by the lottery money was spent lavishly in charity on behalf of public enterprises and in private gifts vast sugar-works were even opened and operated by the lottery owners who desired to pose as representative businessmen engaged in fostering one of the great industries of the state in eighteen seventy seven when louisiana was striving to shake off the last vestige of the carpet-bag regime the lottery company gave the money needed to bribe those legislators whose votes were necessary to oust the carpet-bagger packard from the governor's chair public sentiment in louisiana therefore was more than cordial to the lottery its charter was renewed in eighteen seventy nine and after that it seemed to be assured of a permanent lease of life its revenues were very great one-third of the entire mail matter which reached new orleans was addressed to m a dauphin the nominal head of the company it was said that the postal notes and money orders which it cashed amounted to no less than thirty thousand dollars a day in eighteen eighty the attention of mr alexander k mcclure editor of the philadelphia times was attracted by the persistency with which the louisiana lottery sought to have advertisements inserted in his newspaper he was startled also by the lavish offers of money made to secure such advertising an investigation showed him that although the pennsylvania law imposed a penalty for advertising lotteries not less than fifty thousand dollars a year was paid to the newspapers of the state for the use of their columns mr mcclure brought suit in the lower courts to test the law and it was found to be defective he then framed a more stringent bill and after a vigorous canvass he secured its enactment by the pennsylvania legislature in eighteen eighty three in the course of the discussion which went on in the press mr mcclure's own paper spoke out with frank severity of the lottery managers these persons angered by the loss of their pennsylvania business and wishing to make an example of the man who had opposed them noted down his name and waited until circumstances should enable them to take revenge two years later in eighteen eighty five mr mcclure visited the new orleans exposition the lottery through its spies had learned that he was coming and at the very moment of his arrival he was served with a writ sworn out by dauphin and claiming one hundred thousand dollars damages for libeling the lottery mr mcclure was in a distinctly hostile community where the courts were in the hands of lottery appointees the lawyers of the city were nearly all in the lottery's pay and to defend the suit seemed to be an absolutely hopeless undertaking even one of mr mcclure's personal friends said to him we are all in it here and i hardly know how to advise you so pleased was dauphin over his successful coup that he telegraphed an account of it to every city in the land through the agency of the associated press note thirty nine page two eighteen this little burst of exultant insolence on the part of dauphin was perhaps not unnatural but it cost the lottery company dear it stirred to active indignation a feeling which had lain dormant all over the country and even in louisiana itself within a few hours after dauphin's news had been made public a wealthy philadelphian telegraphed mr mcclure that fifty thousand dollars had been placed to his credit for use in his defence the unbought press in every state took up the case with vigor in new orleans itself a committee of lawyers all strangers to mr mcclure called upon him to say that the bar of that city would defend the suit without cost 
the governor of the state though friendly to the lottery deplored its action in this instance and gave mr mcclure the benefit of his advice sending to him as counsel a lawyer whose fidelity and honour were above suspicion the lottery managers refused to take warning from this display of enlightened sentiment they resolved to press the case at once to trial they felt themselves to be omnipotent they regarded the judges as their creatures even the marshal who drew the names for the jury was in their pay they had millions of money at their disposal why should they not make a conspicuous example of this stranger from the north they laid their plans in such a way as to prevent so they thought all chance of an appeal to the supreme court of the united states mr mcclure's counsel however devised a plea which baffled them it appeared that a suit instituted against mr mcclure by the lottery in pennsylvania was still before a united states district court on a question of appeal the situation was therefore anomalous in that the company was prosecuting mr mcclure upon the same charge before two federal courts at one and the same time these facts were duly set forth and a plea of justification was entered to which was appended a long series of questions which dolphin would be forced to answer should the case be tried these questions were most ingeniously framed and dolphin could not answer them without giving information which would expose himself and his agents to criminal prosecution in nearly every state and territory of the union this meant not merely fine and imprisonment for the lottery officials but the absolute destruction of their business so soon as dolphin's lawyers perceived the gulf which was yawning for their employers they experienced a genuine panic when the case was called they actually opposed a motion to have the appeal advanced upon the docket by this time many leading men in washington had become interested in the matter senator edmonds and senator hawley arranged that the trial when it took place should be presided over by mr justice wood a judge of unimpeachable integrity the attorney-general of the united states appeared in the supreme court in opposition to the lottery company an agitation was begun in congress which seemed full of menace to the lottery interests dauphin and his associates therefore capitulated on their knees one of their representatives went to mr mcclure and begged that the suit might be discontinued offering to pay all the expenses counsel fees the cost of depositions printing and the rest mr mcclure consented and within twenty-four hours the company had settled every bill and had withdrawn its suit but they had gone too far and they had thereafter to deal with the public resentment which they had evoked measures were passed in congress excluding lottery tickets from the mails and forbidding the transmission of newspapers which contained lottery advertisements the anti-lottery bill of eighteen ninety three even forbade the delivery of registered letters or the payment of postal orders to the company driven from the mails the lottery sought to carry on its business through the express companies but as these were engaged in interstate traffic congress again effectively interfered at last in louisiana the question of a renewal of the company's charter came before the people a campaign against it was carried on successfully in a burst of moral indignation the company offered to pay the state a million and a quarter of dollars every year but the bribe had no effect and in eighteen ninety three this gigantic structure of lawlessness and corruption was swept out of existence forever public wrath against the lottery was only one phase of a wider agitation the fifty-first congress enacted two very important legislative measures which reflected a rapidly growing hostility to trust in general and to the lawlessness of railway corporations 
Senator Sherman of Ohio on December 4, 1889, introduced a bill which, with a few amendments, was subsequently passed and was approved by President Harrison on July 2, 1890. It is usually spoken of as the Sherman Antitrust Law, though its formal title was An Act to Protect Trade and Commerce Against Unlawful Restraints and Monopolies. And both in its phraseology and in the intention of its framer, it was a very drastic measure. Its purpose, as described by Senator Sherman himself, was to arm the federal courts within the limits of their constitutional power that they may cooperate with the state courts in checking, curbing, and controlling the most dangerous combinations that now threaten the business, property, and trade of the people of the United States. It aims only at unlawful combinations. It does not in the least affect combinations in aid of production where there is free and fair competition. It is the right of every man to work, labor, and produce in any lawful vocation, and to transport his products on equal terms and conditions and under like circumstances. This is industrial liberty, and lies at the foundation of the equality of all rights and privileges. Note 40, page 221. The immediate cause of the enactment of this law was an investigation which had been conducted by a committee of the Senate in 1888-89. Sittings were held in Washington, Chicago, and elsewhere, and in spite of the reluctance of some witnesses and the absence of others, a mass of testimony was taken which proved beyond question that many of the great corporations were crushing out competition and destroying industry by means which were in direct violation of the common law. Some very peculiar facts were brought to light regarding the operations of the Sugar Trust, the Standard Oil Company, and the Great Dressed Beef Combination of which Armour and Company of Chicago were the head. But it was not this investigation alone which made it impossible for Congress to remain quiescent any longer. Similar inquiries had been conducted by state legislatures, and testimony taken in many civil and criminal cases in the state courts had been made public. Moreover, thousands of businessmen had felt the crushing weight of monopoly in the destruction of their means of livelihood. Therefore, although certain senators professed to feel doubts about the constitutionality of the bill, it was passed by a non-partisan vote in both houses. The essential provisions of this act apply to all contracts and combinations in the form of trusts or otherwise, and to conspiracies in restraint of either interstate or international commerce. Such contracts or combinations were made illegal, and persons participating in them were declared to be guilty of a misdemeanor and subject either to a fine not exceeding $5,000 or to imprisonment not exceeding one year or to both these penalties at the discretion of the court. Furthermore, all goods shipped in violation of the Act were to be seized and forfeited by proceedings instituted by the Attorney General on behalf of the United States. How far this act was to prove effective as a weapon against monopolies will be considered in another chapter. Note 41, page 222. It was in itself a strong measure and did honor to the statesmen who framed it and ably advocated it. Another concession to the widespread sentiment regarding corporate abuses was an act aimed against those railroads which had practically defrauded the government and the nation in the matter of public hands. The generosity of the national government to the railways of the West had been remarkable. The case of the Union Pacific Railway Company, after 1880 known as the Union Pacific Railroad Company, is sufficiently illustrative to justify citation. This company had been incorporated in 1862. It received from the government a grant of five sections of public land for each mile of rail, and two years later this grant was doubled. 
In all, it received the enormous total of 6,806,497 acres. Note 42, page 223. It is interesting to remember that the contractors of the road, in order to augment the land grants, built their road not in a straight line across the prairies, as would naturally have been the case, but in an erratic zigzag with twists and turns intended solely to increase the length of line, and thus practically to cheat the government out of hundreds of thousands of acres. In order to assist the railway still further, the Secretary of the Treasury was directed to turn over to it, as a loan, 16 currency bonds of the United States, each of the denomination of $1,000 for every mile of road constructed through the plains, and 48 similar currency bonds for each mile of road built through the region of the Rocky Mountains. The total issue of such bonds for the benefit of the railway was $61 million. As though all this were not enough, the company was allowed to issue first mortgage bonds equal in amount to the government bonds just mentioned. Thus, the lien of the government upon the railway dropped to the position of a second mortgage. The road was actually built by the notorious Credit Mobilier, which took over all the resources of the original company, both land and cash. Of course, the construction of a railway uniting the Atlantic states with those of the Pacific was a work of immense national importance. On the other hand, it became evident in after years that the generosity of the government had been ill-requited. Thus, under the directorship of J. Gould and later of Mr. Charles F. Adams, the management diverted a good part of its earnings, above operating expenses and fixed charges, to the building of branch lines, instead of applying a percentage of the profits toward cancelling the obligation to the government as provided in the Act of 1862. Indeed, the government received but slight consideration from any of these western roads for whose construction it had pledged its credit. In the matter of the public lands, the railroads were peculiarly unscrupulous. In President Cleveland's first message to Congress, note 43, page 224, attention was sharply called to the whole subject by the declaration that these princely grants and subsidies had been diverted to private gains and corrupt uses. Our great nation does not begrudge its generosity, but it abhors peculation and fraud, a faithful application of the grants to the construction and perfecting of their roads, and an honest discharge of their obligations are all the public asks, and it will be contented with no less. But as time went on, it was plain that the railroad magnates had no conception of public duty, and thought simply of their own enrichment. One of them, Mr. C. P. Huntington, who had wrung a great fortune out of his manipulation of Pacific Railways, was told that if he did not fulfill his obligations, the government might step in and take possession. It's quite welcome to, he cynically answered. There's nothing left but two streaks of rust and a right of way. In 1890, however, this scandalous state of things came to an end. The western states were swept by a feeling of anger against the railways, which, in impudent disregard of their own obligations, were holding vast tracts of fertile land, and thus barring them against intending settlers under the homestead law. An act of Congress which the President approved on September 29th ordered the forfeiture of all such lands, of which more than a hundred million acres were thus restored to public uses. The last two years of Mr. Harrison's administration were marked by great activity in the State Department. This was not due so much to Mr. Blaine's fondness for a spirited foreign policy as to circumstances over which he had no initial control. In March 1891, a band of Italian criminals in New Orleans reached a climax of sporadic lawlessness by murdering the chief of police. 
for a long time they had been extorting money from citizens under threat of death and had committed other crimes with practical impunity because the local juries were either afraid to convict them or else had been bribed to disagree in rendering a verdict hennessy the head of the police showed immense energy and acuteness in tracking down the members of this band they had him watched and followed and late one evening he was shot almost to pieces at a signal given by an italian boy against nine italians strong evidence was gathered and they were promptly brought to trial to the astonishment of the judge himself the jury acquitted six of the prisoners and disagreed in the case of the other three on the following night a mob led by some of the most substantial citizens broke open the prison seized the prisoners and either hanged or shot them all within a few hours the italian government cabled a strong protest to mr blaine italy's prime minister the marquis di rudini demanded that the lyncher should be immediately punished and that an indemnity should be immediately paid mr blaine answered temperately to the effect that the united states government had no local jurisdiction in louisiana but that to italian residents the state courts were open precisely as to citizens he did however strongly urge governor nichols of louisiana to set the legal machinery of the state in motion and he assured the italian premier that the whole affair should receive most careful consideration the italian blood was up however and baron fava italy's minister at washington was directed to press mr blaine incessantly baron fava intimated that unless immediate action were taken he must withdraw from washington to this hint he received from mr blaine a very sharp reply i do not recognize the right of any government to tell the united states what it shall do we have never received orders from any foreign power and shall not begin now it is a matter of indifference what persons in italy think of our institutions i cannot change them still less violate them to this curt note written much in the same spirit as webster's famous letter to the chevalier hussman in eighteen fifty the italian minister made no answer but at once left washington and took passage for italy his action caused great excitement especially in new orleans many persons expected that italy would deliver an ultimatum which president harrison's government would certainly reject and thus bring war within an appreciable distance rumor said that an italian squadron was being mobilized and might soon appear off the mouth of the mississippi to menace new orleans the situation looked even graver when the american minister at rome left italy but those who were well informed felt no disquietude in view of the enormous disparity in fighting strength between italy and the united states an english naval officer who was in new york at the time made a joking comment which contained a certain element of truth you people said he want more ships for your navy just let those italian fellows send over a fleet then you take the fleet and there you are as a matter of fact the italian government thought better of it before long and though many americans were mobbed and otherwise insulted in italy and though the italian press breathed forth threatenings amicable relations were soon restored it turned out that only three of the italians who had been lynched were subjects of the king of italy the rest having been naturalized in this country and so when congress purely as an act of grace voted the sum of twenty five thousand dollars to be given to the relatives of the dead men king humbert accepted the award and diplomatic relations were resumed an embroilment between the united states and chile which took place at this time was a much more serious affair in january eighteen ninety one a furious civil war broke out in chile of all the spanish-american republics chile has been the only one to conduct its foreign and domestic affairs in such a way as to win the respect of other nations 
situated in the temperate zone and ribbed with mountain ranges, its climatic and geographic conditions seem to have developed in its people certain characteristics for which one looks in vain among the other South American states. The government of Chile has been conspicuous for its intelligence, conservatism, and integrity. Its finances have been ably administered. Order has been maintained through the strict enforcement of enlightened laws. Its political institutions are modeled upon those of the United States, and throughout the greater part of its history it has been free from turbulence and mercenary insurrection. Its successful war with Bolivia and Peru in 1881 made it plain that henceforth Chile deserved respectful consideration as a naval and military power. A knowledge of these facts, however, has led the Chilean people to cultivate a self-consciousness which does not always show itself in the most attractive fashion. Educated Chileans are apt to forget that after all their nation is a very small one and that, from the nature of things, it cannot figure very conspicuously in the history of the world. They are too fond of comparing it with the wretched little republics which are its immediate neighbors, and they forget that while Chile is an important state when contrasted with Peru or Uruguay or Venezuela, it is only a dwarf beside the United States or the giant nations of Europe. But the typical Chilean has a dream of his own, and one which he has cherished for more than fifty years. He believes that ultimately his country is destined to assert an hegemony over all the Spanish-speaking peoples of South America, and in the end to extend its influence northward, until, at last, having absorbed even Mexico, Chile shall confront the mighty North American Republic upon the borders of the Rio Grande. There are not a few Chileans who even think that by the end, perhaps, of another century, the United States may have to do battle with its southern rival for the mastery of the Western world. There is a touch of Spanish vanity in this magnificent vision, yet though to Americans it may seem only ludicrous and fantastic, it appeals very strongly not merely to the Chilean imagination, but to the Chilean sense of probability. Not unnaturally, therefore, the statesmen of that small republic have always been extremely sensitive concerning the claim of the United States to concern itself with South American affairs, and they resent the assumption that the Monroe Doctrine has any application to their country. It is necessary to remember these facts in order to understand the drift of the events which are now to be narrated. In 1886, Chile elected as its president one of those extremely able but unscrupulous men who appear from time to time in South American nations, and among whom Francia of Paraguay and Guzman Blanco of Venezuela stand out in history as interesting types. This was Señor Don José Manuel Palmaceda, whose rule up to the end of 1890 was marked by the most enlightened measures. He belonged to the so-called Progressist Party, and as president he did much to promote public education, to foster internal improvements and generally to develop the resources of his country. His political opponents, however, who headed a sort of oligarchy made up of leading members of the Chilean Congress, accused the president of plotting to perpetuate his power by securing the election of a tool of his as his successor. When he dissolved Congress and raised revenue without the authority of law, the Congressional Party proclaimed a civil war. Note 44, page 229 and sought to overthrow Balmaceda by force of arms. In this struggle, the United States had no direct interest, but various circumstances soon led to complications of a very serious nature. It had been for thirty years the policy of our government to give no encouragement to revolts in other countries. 
Mr. Blaine, therefore, by President Harrison's direction, continued as before to recognize Balmaceda as the lawful head of the Chilean Republic, and to refuse to the Congressionalists the belligerent rights which they claimed. Balmaceda had been legally elected president. He held possession of the capital of the country. He controlled an army which was carrying on operations in the field against the rebels. Therefore, why should the United States sever its official relations with him and suddenly recognize his enemies? The case seemed plain enough, yet there were circumstances which made the situation somewhat delicate. Ever since the events of 1882, which have already been narrated, note 45, page 230, Mr. Blaine had been viewed with a certain rancor by Chileans of all classes. They regarded him as an intermeddler, or even worse, and honestly believed him to be actuated by a feeling of hostility to Chilean interests. Therefore, when he continued to recognize Balmaceda, the Congressional Party in Chile claimed that his action was due to an unfriendly spirit, and before long they professed to see what they called his malign influence at work against them. A good part of the Chilean navy had joined the revolutionists. Some engagements took place between these ships and the ships whose officers were Balmacedists. A small American squadron under Rear Admiral Brown had been ordered to Chilean waters to protect American interests, and the Congressionalists asserted in very bitter language that officers from American vessels had acted as spies, that they had reported to Balmaceda the strength and also the movements of the rebel ships, and that in various other ways the naval force of the United States had violated the requirements of strict neutrality. Admiral Brown indignantly denied this charge, which was made in the most offensive manner. There was, indeed, no evidence at all to justify it. Nevertheless, it was generally believed by the Congressionalists, who presently got possession of the entire seacoast and the great fortified port of Alparaiso. Hatred of the United States became nearly universal in Chile after an incident which occurred in May. End of Chapter 5, Part 3